you have your Bibles, go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we will be in verses 14 through 18 this morning. 14 through 18 this morning. As you're turning there, <clears throat> let me say to you, unrelated to the sermon, just as an extreme encouragement, I wanted to tell you this, that the elders have been praying for some very specific and special things for our congregation, I think, for many years. And in a recent time, I think we've really seen God begin to answer uh, these prayers. And I can't give you the details yet, but just want you to know that God is good. He is always trustworthy. We can rest in His hands. Lord willing, sometime after the first of the year, probably at a family meeting, we'll be able to share more details with you. But for now, just know God is always doing things even when we cannot see them. He is faithful. So with that said, let's read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. He says this, Since therefore the children... Share in flesh and blood. He himself, speaking of Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And let's pray once again this morning. Father, I pray for your graciousness upon us. Not just myself, but for us as a people, that we would long to hear your voice. As my son asked me the other night, Father, he says, as you know, he asked, how do we hear God? And I was so thrilled to tell him, through your word, that's how we hear God. We hear him speak through his word. And so, Father, we know that you have not been silent, that you have spoken. And so my prayer, specifically this morning, is that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, your voice, Father, for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, we think highly of people who reach some sort of goal after struggling against 
severe obstacles. I was reflecting on maybe some examples, and um, because of some of the nature of recent events, I was thinking about Martin Luther King, who struggles against severe obstacles, and in many ways reaches many of the goals in which he was after. Certainly not everything, but at least part, and we have an admiration for someone like that. I was also thinking about the other Martin Luther, who doesn't have the last name King, uh, but in many ways is the king of the Reformation. Uh, as we studied in church history the past couple days, who against the obstacles of the entire Roman Catholic Church, uh, succeeded in many of the goals in which he was seeking to accomplish. And certainly, if not in his lifetime, the effects of it after you see the goals in many ways accomplished. You know, when we see people who obtain or finish the race after great obstacles, if you and we have any wisdom at all, we would at least be curious as to how they did it. How did that happen? How did Martin Luther succeed? What was going on? How did he accomplish the task, even against severe obstacles? If you did renovate us, I asked you to think about some people as such. And then I asked you this question, is Jesus such an example to Christians? Did Jesus genuinely struggle against the challenges of life just like us? Or, did Jesus have access to something extra that is unique to him and unavailable to believers? It's kind of the question for us today. Let me make a few observations. Just, if I'm thinking about our congregation, I think this has application even beyond, but if I'm just observing our flock here, I think we, I think all of us, at least at times, travel through life empty, discouraged, weak, and at the very least, tossed to and fro by the waves. I'm not saying that as an indictment. I don't mean that to be a... a Shame on you for living this way. I mean that to be a recognition of the reality of our struggle. That our hearts are weak. I have recognized many of this, much of this, in my own life in recent weeks. Let me give you some examples of what I mean by this. You know, oftentimes the slightest words from another will throw us emotionally and mentally for a loop for days. Another thing that happens because of this weakness in us is that we get caught up oftentimes in the irreverent babble described in 2 Timothy 2. 
Continuing these observations, you know, I think faced with many of life's decisions, our way to a conclusion oftentimes doesn't look much like Jesus's, but more like a throwing the dice with our emotions. You know, even the smallest turn of events oftentimes will send us toppling over and over again into some level of depression. Yeah, I added to my notes this morning as I was studying that depression is something we all struggle with, and yet something none of us are willing to admit. You know, going down this, again, the same vein of thought, when our thoughts are free to roam for just a few moments, you know, when we, when we have a few moments in the middle of the day when we're not preoccupied with something else, when we're not escaping into some other realm or busy doing something else, even good or bad, but when our thoughts are free to roam for just a few moments here and a few moments there, I imagine that many of us, they, that they rarely go to the rare and precious jewel of the gospel, but they go to whatever else has arrested our hearts with deep talons. We live life this way, day in and day out. I shared with a good friend of mine and a couple of days ago, I said, you know, I consider myself a pretty convictional person. Like at the end of the day, when I have to pull the trigger, I'm going to go with what my conviction is. And I was told my wife too the other day, I said, but you know what, daggone it. If my heart and my mind would just be arrested by that conviction between now and the time of actually having to do something. What gloriousness that would be. Many of these things describe myself. This year, I want to propose to you and proclaim to you even and help you build the conviction that Jesus Christ lived the glorious life He did predominantly via dependence on the divine resources of the Father and the Spirit. And therefore, we can look to Him as our supreme example. We can look to Him as our example. That Jesus is the prototype of the dependent, Spirit-filled life. You see, the degree to which Jesus depended on the Father and the Spirit instead of His own divine power is the degree to which Jesus can be our genuine example. 
that we can live the Spirit-empowered, strong, steady, and firm life similar to that of Jesus Christ. Now, before, though, we explore this marvelous truth, we need to be very careful about the way in which we think about such things. You know the, remember the old bracelets? Anybody have a WWJD bracelet? Anybody? I have one, two, three, four, five. Okay, good, good, good. Good, good, good. Those were, like, I think there was a good heart behind those. Good heart. But I think without the teaching that we're going to talk about today, those can be very unhelpful. We don't want to lose sight, first and foremost, of Christ's divinity. We have to be careful that as we go down this road that we don't lose sight of His divinity. Like, if you're from the church history class, like who? Anybody know, remember the names? Arian, right? Everybody remember that, right? Okay, I just thought I would throw that in there. Sorry, didn't mean to discourage you that no one remember the name, but our Arianism, there you go. And we want to make sure that we build this idea of imitating Christ on the right foundation. You see, what, what would Jesus do is a great question for us to ask. Now, I'm not saying, you know, we're going to be handing out WWJD bracelets for Christmas this year. However, I mean, if they did, they'd have to say a whole lot more before that, before we'd get to that. But, and there's just not enough room for a renovation-style bracelet. I mean, it'd be a sleeve. How about that? We just, we'll just do like WWJD sleeves. There you go. On both arms. <laughs> what would Jesus do? And, but you've got to think about all these other things before you get to that. That would be our style. So we want to build this right foundation. That's what I, what I want to do today is help you do that. Build this right foundation on which we can think about the idea of imitating Jesus Christ. And then over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about, first about imitating Christ and the call to do that, that it is a biblical mandate. Then we're going to talk about how did Jesus then de- de- uh, depend on the divine resources of the Father, and then the, th- the fourth and final week will be on the divine resources of the Spirit. How did this work? Our first thought for today, from this chapter in Hebrews, and I, I want to point out to you, I'm we're going to be in 14 through 18, but I'm going to bounce around in 14 through 18. I'm not just going to go the first phrase, the second phrase, the third phrase. We're going to kind of bounce around a little bit. So it would really help you to keep your Bible right there at chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. He says this in verse 14. Well, I guess I should give you the first point first. Here it is. Our greatest need is not to be better people, but to be rescued people. Our greatest need is not to be better people, but to be rescued people. Look at verse 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
Listen, I, I, I'm convinced that most Christians, even us in this room, look at ourselves as good people, generally good people. That is the American way of thinking about people. We're generally good, who do good things, and who simply just need to do more good things. That's how we'll make America great again. But the Bible never talks about us this way. It doesn't ever talk about us this way. This way of thinking, again, uh, reach back to the church history class, is Pelagianism. It's the idea that we are inherently kind of amoral and that we are free to choose which way we're going to go. That we, that we don't have this natural immorality that's this part of our nature. But the Bible talks about us that way, not the way the ancient heresy of Pelagianism. But this is all over our churches today. This is all over, particularly TV evangelists. That you're just good people and you just need to think better happy thoughts like Peter Pan and you'll be better. You see, the mention of the devil in this passage shows us the depth of our plight. It shows us the problem. It shows us that there's a deep problem. I want to remind you of a few things here. The devil has never inherently possessed control over death. That's not what Paul's teaching here. But instead, the devil gained his power when he seduced humankind to rebel against God. So God didn't just give Satan the power over death. But he grabbed a hold of this when, in the garden, he seduced Adam and Eve. You see, the depth of our problem involves Satan himself and his power over death. Particularly the fact that this power over death can be used to control us. Another thought for you to keep in mind here is that flesh and blood refers to the weakness and frailty of humankind. You can't miss these things in the text. We are weak and frail. So this mention of the devil shows the depth of our plight. The second thing I want you to see is that fear of death is a reality that we often forget or ignore or don't think much about. One commentator said this, Death is Satan's henchman who bludgeons humanity into submission. We don't fear death like we should in general. Like we don't have a healthy understanding of fear, I'm afraid. I, I was speculating maybe some reasons why. One is maybe because of age. If you're younger, you tend to not think so much about death unless you're faced with death in the death of another. I think some of us, we don't fear death because we don't understand judgment and what follows in death. Maybe we don't have this fear of death because we have insulated ourselves from it. I mean, that, that's very much America. That's what we have done. 
We try to avoid death at all costs. Like when we think about even people who have aged, who have spent 70, 80, 90 years, like the default is always save life at all costs. But there's a different side of this. We're going, death isn't always a bad thing. I mean, death is inherently a bad thing, but the death of that saint, if this person's a believer, moving on to eternity with Christ, that's not a bad thing. And sometimes that's the good thing to happen. But see, we, we don't usually get around to that because we just insulate ourselves from death. I think also maybe because we've been desensitized to death, largely from TV and such. We see death all around us in video games, and, and so you, you just, just desensitized to it. Another reason is maybe because we've built around ourselves lives without consequences. Like we kind of build this perception that I should be able to do what I want without having to face any consequences for it. Maybe the last one here, because we don't face death like they were during this time. And like other brothers and sisters face both here and around the world. A death that might be brought brought about because of their faith. We talked about that, like the purity of the church. Purity and subsequent unity of the church during times of persecution uh, over the course of church history. It's just profound. And then once persecution ends, what do you do with the people who ditched the church? But there's this unity this, that was brought about and this purity was brought about as these people faced death. But the question I just I just we need to think more rightly about Death. I don't have a ton of time to do that this morning, but I just want to bring that to your attention, that I think we avoid the thoughts of death. You see, death for them, in Hebrews, at this time, was a reality that they faced for the profession of their faith, particularly. Like, if they professed Christ, then death could be brought about. You know, I'm afraid... Uh, but, but I trust God, this is the way He has it, that the closest thing that we have to this, for most of us in this room, is that our profession of faith might lead to some sort of ridicule from others. Maybe. Even that. Pretty rare. But I think even more so, our profession of faith might lead to the death of our pride, self-righteousness, and maybe even our self-indulgences. Any of those things in which we are called to put to death, our profession of faith will lead to that. And I think in many ways we're afraid of that. I'm afraid that many of us wobble in our profession of faith because we fear death to self. We fear death of pride, death to pride, like those in the early church feared death to their very bodies. 
I mean, listen, some of us feel persecuted because an elder or a member of the body might challenge their kingdom. Oh! Except I think, as Rusty pointed out to me this week, as you study the accounts of many of the martyrs, they were much less afraid of death than we are of losing our own agendas, self-righteousness, and pride. So fear of death is a reality that we often forget. The third and kind of final thing underneath this is that we were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, we're going to rehash all this death stuff and slavery stuff. You can go back to Ephesians 2. There's like, you know, I don't know, 15 sermons on that, about 15 hours you can listen to on death and and all the stuff in chapter 2 of Ephesians. But, But what he tells us here, he reminds us here, is that we were subject to lifelong slavery. One commentator said this, Tragically, human beings destined to rule over creation, you hear that? To rule over creation, that's what we were created to do, are instead slaves, paralyzed by the fear of death. You need to be thinking like Egypt here. Not the current country, Egypt in Exodus, right? And Genesis. That the Israelites, like, they had no hope. Like, the writer of Hebrews has this in his mind as he's thinking slavery. They had no hope. They were subjects to lifelong slavery. And many of them were indeed lifelong in slavery. The people as, as a whole were subject to this as well. You see, this was our plight. This was our plight. Those who were subject to lifelong slavery. And, and if, listen, if you want to remind, if you go, okay, like that's really hard for me to grab a hold of, okay? That's why it's so important for us to explore the ways in which we subject ourselves back to forms of this lifelong slavery right now. So we'd say back to the beginning of today that when we think about this idea of being controlled and tossed to and fro by the waves of this world instead of resting secure and fast and firm in Christ, that in many ways we are being subjected once again into the slavery which we've been set free from. So if you're going, okay, well, I don't, you know, I got saved at a young age. I don't know how to relate. To, uh, look at how you want to return to slavery now. The ways in which you subject yourself once again. Listen, the reality is some of us don't even realize that we're in slavery right this moment. So we're slaves to sin and the death it leads to. That's what he was saying. So let me ask you this question. Does this sound like people, thinking about this death, that's our plight, the depth of it because of Satan, lifelong slavery, does this sound like people who just need to look to Jesus to become better people? No. Does this sound like people who even after salvation can be people who simply call upon repentance and forgiveness, but every once in a while? Does it sound like that kind of people? It doesn't sound like that kind of people to me. People who cry out for help just when times get rough. 
Listen, times are always rough if you understand the propensity of your sinful self. So I think we should see that our greatest need is not just to be better people, but our greatest need is to be rescued. And God, in His great kindness, sends Christ to be our rescue. And what we see also here in Hebrews is that Christ's humanity was necessary for this rescue. That Christ's humanity, that this was a part of God's plan. This wasn't happenstance. It wasn't just a cool way to do it. It wasn't, listen, it wasn't just so that we could have some kind of connection with Jesus because he came as a man, even though that's part of it, but it's not most fundamentally for that. Christ's humanity, by God's design, was necessary for our rescue. Look in verse 14, and then we're going to read verse 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, right, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And then in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. First thing I want you to see here is that we share a common nature with Jesus. We share a common nature with him. A famous preacher by the last name of Pink said this. Arthur Pink said this. The tragic thing is that for the present... Our minds are so beclouded and our understanding so affected by sin, it is impossible for us to fully perceive the wonder of the divine incarnation. It's just impossible. That we're just limited because of the sin that's in our hearts. Now this idea, of, if you look there, it says that he partook. He himself likewise partook. And then before that, it says that children share. The children share. Jesus likewise partook. Different words. Why is this important? Now, both of them carry kind of this, re, this thought of participating in a kind of a shared reality. That they're both sharing in this, uh, this, this being, doing, this, this reality, if you will, is the better, uh, the better word. I can't find a better word than reality. But the difference is this. See, the children share in flesh and blood as their original and natural state. But Jesus, as one commentator said, Jesus existed before his incarnation. Then he partook of the same reality and began to share fully the nature of those whom he thus chose to redeem. So Jesus is not always, like Jesus doesn't share in our nature in an original existence sense like you and I do. We have no other existence other than the flesh and blood. 
Like we didn't exist before that. Like our souls are not eternal in the sense that they've always existed and will always exist. They came into an existence at a moment. We obviously believe that that is in the womb at the beginning of conception. I don't want to get into the technical of when God does that, but the beginning, the moment, that's why we would adamantly oppose abortion at any point in pregnancy. But Jesus, on the other hand, has an existence outside of the flesh, although now his existence is going forward in the flesh. But he existed apart from the flesh and blood prior to this. So that's why, I think that's why Hebrews is careful here to not say, and Jesus shared in the flesh and blood. He doesn't. But he partook of this and began to fully share in the nature of those whom he thus chose to redeem. Pink said this as well. If ever we were to be made like him, he first had to be made like us. The incarnation. The second thing I want you to see here is that Jesus' identification with his brothers and sisters led to what? His death. That his identifying with us, that his partaking in, our, in the nature of which we only know, we know only, rather, led to his death. Now this death of Jesus is not the consequence of Jesus' rebellion, but instead it's a consequence, hear me, of doing the will of God. That his death is the result of doing the will of God. Yes, a consequence of doing the will of God. Let me ask you this question, just as a quick side note. Why would we think then, in light of the past numbers of weeks, if we talk about submission and authority, why would we think that submission for us would look anything less than death to self? Why would it look anything less than death of something? But this death, this death and this death alone was the instrument both in breaking Satan's stronghold on death and in delivering those who were enslaved to death. So Jesus' identification with his brothers and sisters led to his death. Thirdly, through death, Jesus has taken all of the devil's power away from him. See, this is, this is the thing. We have to think about death, and we have to think about the rottenness of death and the terribleness of death and how that's held over our heads when we don't even realize it's being held over our heads if we are to understand what it means for Jesus to take away the power that devil has over death. I'm afraid to too many of us, the fact that Jesus has taken the devil's power away from us falls onto emptiness. This should mean something. It should shake our hearts. Now let me talk about specifically, what is he talking about, this, the devil's power? Why, why did you say it that way? The, the, the passage says that 
that uh, he would destroy the one who has the power over death. Well, you got to, I don't have time to dive into all, but you'll have to go later on in Ephesians, but I'm sorry, later on in Hebrews. Hebrews assumes the continued existence of the devil even past this point. So I don't think he's talking about the, that, that's, that the devil is obliterated. But that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, now holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands. That it's no longer something Satan can hang over the heads of God's people. That he has taken it back. You see, the reality is, is we're still subject to physical death. But the terrors of death are gone. They've been removed. You see, Jesus' exaltation confirms His victory and opens up the way of access to God that renders death and the fear that death inspires, it renders it irrelevant for God's people. These are the key, like, these thoughts that I'm saying, like, right now, like, you, you, you got to hold on to those, particularly for later on today. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. You see, we have this way to enter into the holy places. Listen, you should go read Leviticus. Understand what that means. Refresh your mind that this this month, that this one coming will open up for us a way into this most holy place. That before could not have been entered apart from God's very strict means. You see, death can no longer be held over our heads as a means of intimidation. Satan has us convinced, listen to me, he has us convinced that anything short of self-propagation is dangerous to ourselves and ultimately death to ourselves. Do you know what that is? It's just Satan's way of intimidating you with death because you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, this is the predominant story of the Scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, that man doesn't just need to be better. He needs to be rescued. And that Jesus will one day come, in the New Testament, He has come as a man and saves His people. This is the foundation upon which we can carefully build a theology of imitation. And I want you to see as we work through this what that looks like. Our next thought from this Hebrews passage is this. We are in greater need of a Savior to rescue us than for an example to follow after. I've been saying this already. I've said it many times. 
Now I want to take the brick we've been talking about and set it into the foundation. We are in greater need of a Savior to rescue us than for an example to follow after. Look at 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, the fundamental point of the New Testament is not that we need someone to imitate, but that we need, and not that we need an example, but that we need a Savior. One person I read this week said this, the danger is that any exclusive focus on the example of Jesus effectively truncates the genuine gospel. I think this is why getting into the WWJD apart from the saving work of Jesus as the fundamental place and the primary place, the only place really that we go to and when we're thinking about living the Christian life, that we start there, that we depend there. Because if we're not careful what happens is we will truncate the gospel. More on that in a second. As we're looking at this passage, particularly verse 16, he says this, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. What does he mean by he helps? I love the picture he's painting here. He, the idea of helping here is to seize, to lay a hold of something. It's not just to come give you a hand. Like, I'm just going to come give you a hand. Can I just, you know, you've got half of the bucket and I'll take the other half of the bucket. I, I can't wait till my boys can carry a, a big tub by themselves, you know. But now they each have to grab a side of the bucket. Or it's, okay, let me give you a hand, son. No, it's the idea of seizing to grab a hold of. The idea of grabbing us by the hand and bringing us out of Egypt. That's the picture. That's why he's referring to Abraham in part. It's a strong action that leads to help and deliverance. Kind of like this picture of they were helpless. They couldn't even begin to lift the bucket on their own. So Jesus had to come do the whole thing for them. That's the picture. But he helps. Listen, so when you read that, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. What's he saying? He's not just saying that, hey, you guys were good, but let me just come help you a little bit with your problem. He's saying, no, you were desperate without any hope. Let me help you. Something we should see here is that Jesus was not afraid to consider his people, who, to consider as his people those who were in slavery. You see, our confidence on this journey is not in imitating Jesus, but in the Christ who has rescued us. That's where our confidence lies. In verse 17, we see a couple very important things for us to note here. The first is that he is most importantly our high priest. He is our high priest. I don't mean most importantly like in a, everything else than a substandard, but it's very important. 
Note a couple things here. Priests in the Old Testament are never described as merciful. Never described as merciful. Only God is described as merciful. Who, who are the priests of the Old Testament to offer mercy? They have no mercy to offer. Only God has mercy to offer when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. So think about what he's saying here. He's saying that this one who's become our high priest, he says, is what? That he might become a merciful high priest. What's he saying? He's saying now the role of high priest is not fulfilled by a man who has none of his own mercy to offer, but now is filled by the God-man who has the mercy of God to offer you in his high priestly acts. They're together. That's our hope. That Jesus is the merciful one. That it's Jesus' experience of suffering and temptation that makes him perfectly sympathetic. That is merciful to the needs of his people. The priest before can do nothing of that. Yahweh is declared to be faithful to all of his promises towards his creation. So not only is he the merciful high priest, but he is also the faithful high priest. I mean, think about that when you think about the Old Testament. That these priests like had to maintain these very strict standards and many times failed. But he's the faithful one. I quoted here recently 1 Samuel 2, verse 35 where he says, and I will raise up for myself, this is God speaking, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. Think about what he was saying there in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Many, many, many years before the incarnation. So he's our faithful and merciful high priest, and he is also, most importantly, our propitiation. He is our propitiation. I don't want to distract you with too many details here. There's, there's debate as to whether this is propitiation or expiation or, you know, any other Asian. Now, it's really a debate between those two, but it at the very least has the idea of covering and forgiving of sins. See, expiation has the idea of doing away with the sin. It's gone. So it's manward. Propitiation has the idea of, of turning away God's wrath, like doing away with God's wrath. So it's Godward and the difference between the two. But the idea here, at the very least, is that our sins are covered and forgiven. Because of Jesus. Here's the danger. Listen, if we get this wrong, if we focus on Jesus as our example, to the exclusion of Jesus as our Savior, we will shorten or truncate the gospel and Jesus' life to simply a path to moralism and self-righteous legalism 
And the reality is we probably won't even know we're doing it. And I think that's the day. I'm not here to pick on WWJD bracelets. It's just easy, right? If it was just a life of what would Jesus do to the exclusion of the, actu- the gospel of Jesus Christ as the rescuing work, then what you had being perpetuated in our culture was nothing more than moralism that would lead to self-righteous legalism in the hearts of God's people. But if we get this right, if we get this right, if we turn always first to the gospel and His rescue of us, the giving of His righteousness to us, us being divinely ordered relationally as sons and daughters, then... In the power of the gospel, we can begin to look at Jesus as an example that we can follow and as help for all of life. Listen, Jesus came, this is a, I don't want to open up a big can of worms here, but Jesus came, he had no sin nature, so he's not a slave to his sin. Then in the power of the Spirit and the Father, he lives this life as an example for us. What happens to us in the gospel? What happens? We're set free from what? Our sin nature. We're no longer slaves to us. Then what do we get to do? We get to live in the power of the Spirit, the divine resources of the Father. That's why we can't forget that part. That's why all of this talk about imitating Christ has to be founded on and began with. And I'm, talk, I'm not saying like we just need to begin our series talking about the foundation of Jesus in the gospel. I'm saying like every moment of your life as you begin thinking about how do I imitate Christ, in that moment you need every time to be thinking about the gospel rescue of Jesus Christ for your soul. That that's where it began. Now how do I imitate Christ? Because it's only in that freedom that you will truly imitate Christ with power and conviction and success, avoiding moralism and self-righteousness and honoring your Father. Lastly, moving this train forward a little bit more, He is indeed our help. In all of life, He is our help in all of life. All of it. All of it. Hebrews 2.18 says this, For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's think about this for a few moments. Here, the author of Hebrews, I think it's Paul, is going to draw out for us some implications of Christ's high priesthood for the needs of the community. You see, his suffering, his temptation, what are we talking about here? Listen, his suffering was the source of temptation for him. And because he has been tested to the limit 
and remained faithful. He is perfectly qualified to help those who are tempted. So let me give you a few thoughts here as we move towards a closing. First is that he is powerfully able to help. He is powerfully able to help. It doesn't matter what it is. It's that sin you've been struggling with for years. Or your marriage is on the rocks. He is powerfully able to help. What do we mean by help? Again, what we, at its root, at its core, this help is actually rescuing us when we cannot save ourselves. And then as we begin to live like Christ, listen, His help includes the strength for them and us to stand firm in the face of temptation. What's the temptation? What ultimately is this, these temptations? Ultimately, it comes down to being disloyal to God and giving up our Christian profession. But, but back to this help thing. I'm more on that in a second. Help to stand firm in the face of temptation. Also help in that He is merciful and gracious to His children in time of need. You see, something that, I don't know, I, I don't know why, but in American Christianity, like we just lose sight of this. You see, the confidence of sins forgiven in Hebrews would have been a profound help to those in struggle, in trial. That that would be a resting place. But you see, and I think maybe this is getting at why it's such a, a lost on us thought. Is that, see, the confidence of sins forgiven is profound help to someone who recognizes their need for a Savior. And I think that's the piece that is missing so often in our equation of salvation. Is that you utterly, completely needed God to help you out of the depths of death. You see, if you're not humble, then you will not turn to the gospel for confidence in times of trial. When you're in suffering, trial, struggle, whatever it is, a lack of humility will send you elsewhere. Instead, what you will turn to is likely making yourself a victim or finding circumstances and other people to blame. That's where you'll turn. Here's a helpful discerning question. When you're going through a trial, what comes to your mind most frequently? Whatever you're struggling with, whatever the situation is, could be self-induced because of sin or some kind of outward trial. What, 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 what's going? But where does your mind go first? Where does it go to most? 
Does it go to the aspects of the circumstance? Does it just does it keep wandering there and, and finding reasons out there? Or does it go to your hope and salvation and the removal of Satan's deadly intimidation? Where does it go? Because wherever it's going, like your heart wants to find rest. It's wired that way. It wants to find hope. It's wired that way. God's created it that way. So wherever it wanders to most naturally is where you think you can find most hope. And what he's saying here to them who are facing death is that your hope is found where? Running from those people? Is that where it's found? Hiding? Changing the circumstances? Where's it found? What's he saying? In the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where your heart needs to run. You see, he's powerfully able to help, but how's he going to help you? He's going to give you the mercy and grace and point you back to the gospel. So when you're looking for help from other people, you want to know how, whether or not it's good help or not? Are they pointing you and your heart back to the gospel? Or are they partaking in your sinfulness? What are they doing? You see, he is powerfully able to help. But you see, our temptation, kind of a second main thought here, our temptation is not ultimately just to do sin, like just to commit sin, or whether that's of acts of omission or commission. Our temptation, hear me clearly, is always ultimately to be disloyal to God and give up our Christian profession. That's what's at stake. Our Christian faith, our very faith. You see, when our hearts become so overwhelmingly arrested by the circumstances of our trial, what's happening? What's happening? You're giving up on the profession of your faith. You say, whoa, 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 but I still believe in Jesus. I'm saying, where is your heart going? Is it going to your faith in Jesus or is it going to changing the circumstances? Where's it going? Because that's where your faith is, is where you're headed towards, where your heart goes to find rest. That's the profession of faith that you're making in the moment. You see, the temptation is to pull back on our confession of Christ. Why? Because of the fear of hardships and further suffering. That's why we do it. And we think that the answer to that, to avoiding it, instead of turning to Christ, is to turn to something else. But listen, listen. The very, one commentator said this, the very thing that is objectionable, namely Christ's suffering of death, so the fact that he didn't run from the circumstances, but pressed into the Father and ran headlong into the suffering, 
The very fact that he did that, that's the objectionable thing. The very fact that he did that is the thing that has qualified the Lord to be your proper help in your situation of suffering. The very thing that's objectionable. You see, the help that we need is not ultimately just an example, but a Savior. You see, if you press into your confession of Christ, then you can press into a trial and tough situation without fear of death. But if you're unwilling to press into your confession, then you will run from circumstances instead of running to your Savior. See, what we need most is a Savior that we can press into with greater faith and dependence. We need someone who has rescued our hearts so that we might press into His rescuing work. Some closing thoughts for you this morning. When we struggle, when we struggle, whatever the struggle may be, only after we start with our desperate need for rescue can we begin to carefully turn to Christ as an example to imitate. You see, you, you don't just jump from struggle to how would Jesus act. You jump from struggle to your Savior and cling to His redemption. And then ask for strengthen, strengthening of your faith and profession. Then we move to asking things like, what would Jesus do? How would he act? You see, here's what Jesus did. He was the perfect example of divine dependence on the Father and the Spirit. We're talking about what that looks like. What did that look like for Jesus to depend on the Father, depend on the Spirit? What would that look like? For now not just today, but for the rest of our lives, as we journey through the wilderness, if you will, post-Egypt, on our way to the Garden City. We do indeed have a cloud by day and a pillar by night to follow. His name is Jesus. His name is Christ. So church, I want to encourage you, as you face various trials, as you seek to live the Christian life, the first and most consistent place you should turn, must turn your heart to is to Jesus as your Savior. If you do, trials won't be a time of coldness, hard-heartedness, but instead, Instead, they will make you tender and filled with an odd joy that isn't explainable in human terms. James 1, 2-4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What a profound thing to say. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? 
steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what is this faith? What is this faith? Most fundamentally, is this faith in the redeeming work of Jesus for your eternal soul. The sin, and that, that sin and death have been crushed. Satan has been defeated. And that if your faith is in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, then you have been made a child of the King. You don't fear death anymore. Let's pray. Gracious Father, gracious Heavenly Father, Father, we we were not just people swimming in an ocean. As one musician said, waiting for you to send us a, a life preserver. But instead, we were swollen corpse at the bottom of the ocean floor who needed your help of rescue and needed someone to to plunge the depths of our broken world and suffer the ultimate suffering at the hands of this broken world for us. A world that we and our sinfulness brought about. And we needed you to rescue us. Oh, Father. Why do we, why do we look elsewhere? Why? Why does our hearts look for hope elsewhere? Why do we profess faith in anything but the blood of Jesus? Father, I confess we need your help now. Even now. Our hearts are so prone to wander. May our souls be still before your throne. May we rest at your feet. Help us to turn, not just to what Christ would do and how we can imitate Him. That we would turn always. That, Father, we would, our hearts, by Your grace, it only would be by Your grace, would naturally find rest in the work of Your Son, Jesus, for us and for Your glory.
that we would profess faith in that all day long. Father, we ask for your help. I ask for your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we begin to sing, I want to read to you, as we think about the Lord's Supper, Jesus says this, or Paul records these words in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What, do you, what, do you, what, do you, what does he mean? You proclaim the Lord's death. You're professing faith in the death of Jesus. That's what you're doing. So what we just talked about, we get to do visibly for each other, to ourselves, and for the good of each other. But then he goes on. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. He says this, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. I just wanted to give you those Words of encouragement and warning, just to remind you as we partake together, as we profess together our Lord's marvelous saving work. Amen.